and that is Dan Clayton of Salt City Hoops, who joins us here on the Full Court Press. Dan, thanks for your time. How are you? Ajay, how's it going? A fun weekend of uh, playoff basketball behind us. Eight games in the books. It's crazy. Eight games in that span of time, and we're already uh, through all the game ones. John Russell, I'm Ajay Salveson here on the Full Court Press. Dan Clayton now joining us. Dan, let me ask you this. Um, it turned into a street fight last night. Jazz looked uncomfortable with it. Why? Well, uh, you know, the the way Memphis guards the, the ball handlers in pick-and-roll actions, it makes it a little tough for some of the jazz ball handlers to get to their to get to their sweet spots and, and to really generate what they try to generate for the jazz offense in those situations. Um, you know, Donovan Mitchell is a guy who can generally counter that kind of pressure with the ball in his hands, but he wasn't available last night, which obviously has been the source of some intrigue this weekend. Um, Jordan Clarkson sometimes can break that type of defense down with the ball in his hands, but he didn't have a very good game. And then, you know, Mike Conley and Joe Ingles just, you know, they, they were able to score some, but they just weren't able to really get the same juice out of the offense that Utah likes to get. And, and notably, I think what happened is that, um, you know, when you take away the efficacy of the Jazz pick and roll in the middle of the floor, you really keep them from involving the bigs. So Rudy Gobert, you know, ended his night, first of all, in foul trouble, but more importantly, he took just four shots uh, in the game yesterday. And, and again, I think that's, partially a function of how Memphis was playing them, and the Jazz will have now ample chances to respond to that and to try to adjust as we head into game two on um, on Wednesday and then what may or may not be a, a long series after that, after Memphis's upset win in game one. Yeah, it was uh, quite an interesting first game, and, and a lot of folks talked about rust, you know, uh, did the Jazz have rust? Were they not able to come out and perform? Were you surprised with the way they came out? Um, not necessarily. I, I think, you know, I, I thought the effort level was fine even early on in that game. I think if there were signs of rust, it was in some of the passing turnovers that they committed. Um, I think they had like a dozen turnovers in the first half, which is just far too many and ended with, if I remember right, like 20. 21 for the game um you know that just can't happen in a playoff game where possessions mean so much more because playoff basketball tends to be more possession driven and and slow paced and defensive so you can't just gift the other team you know all those extra possessions in in playoff basketball um especially when you're having a hard time scoring but you know outside of that one issue with the turnovers i i thought i thought the effort level was there again you know uh, Jordan Clarkson had a rough shooting night. Um, George Nyang had a rough shooting night. Mike Conley scored a bunch, but but didn't make a lot of threes. I think it was three for 11 from downtown. So, you know, maybe that's another area where not playing for a week kind of hurt the Jazz. But honestly, I think the Jazz welcomed that week off. You know, they're an older team, uh, and, and on top of just the age, you know, a lot of their guys have been carrying heavy loads with all the injuries they've had. Mike Conley had just gotten back from an injury while he and Donovan Mitchell were both out, guys like Joe Ingles and Boyang Bogdanovich, who are both in their 30s, were carrying a larger load. So, you know, I think the Jazz welcomed that week off, and, and I think it would be a little disingenuous of them to turn around and complain about it just because the game didn't go their way. And by the way, I, you know, I don't think we're hearing that. I think that they know that while the effort level was where it needed to be, the execution wasn't, and that's really why they lost game one. And I, I think that they'll try to address that and, and, you know, maybe get Donovan back for game two and, and go try again against a, a Grizzlies team that is a good team, but also a team that the Jazz should be able to comfortably beat in this series. 
And I want to follow up on that. Great point. I, I don't, I'm not overly concerned about the Jazz coming back. I think they, they're too good of a basketball team. They have too many, too many key players there that, that can overcome things. But I love your point about being an older team. How does this bode for the Jazz as they move on throughout the, N, the NBA tournament? Being an older team, do you see that being an issue for them? You know, usually teams that have more, um, let's let's say experience, <laughs> as, <laughs> as a euphemism, and said, you know, experience tends to be historically speaking a pretty strong requisite for playoff success in the NBA. Um, you know, there are obviously some exceptions to that. Even you know, Donovan Mitchell in his first in his first season as a rookie was able to lead the Jazz to a, a round one win. But usually when you see teams making deep playoff runs, they're teams that have guys that, that you know, I like to say, and it's a little bit cliche, but I, I still believe it's true. Like, you kind of have to l- learn to lose in the playoffs before you can learn to win in the playoffs, if that makes any sense. Yep. And, and so I think that that experience will serve the Jazz well. Now, the other side of that coin, and, and this is what maybe you're going to, is you know, the, the Jazz have an opportunity. They have a real advantage in that they're the one Western Conference team that went into this first-round series just heavily, heavily favored. And if they don't make quick work of the Grizzlies, they're, gonna, they're not going to get the most out of that benefit, right? You have, you know, Clippers-Mavs locked in a, um, in a tight battle, like – that one's about as close to a 50-50 series as you're going to get, especially now that the Mavs won game one on the road. And, and the Jazz will face the winner of that series if they get out of the first round. Then you have, you know, Suns and Lakers, two really good teams, two teams that consider themselves contenders. You have Nuggets and Blazers. That's going to be a, a close, hard-fought series. So the Jazz have a real opportunity to take care of business quickly and rest up and, and be ready for later rounds. And so that's more my concern. Like you, I don't, I'm not necessarily freaking out that the Jazz are, are, you know, flawed or that Memphis has exposed anything. I, I think that they'll be okay. But if they don't make this a five or six game series and, and if they have to really go the distance, then that, you know, that's going to take a toll that will, that will erase one of the nice advantages they have. They, you know, going into this, going into this weekend, there were three teams in the entire NBA playoffs that, that were favored, that had, Series win odds of ninety percent or greater, and that was the uh, the Sixers and the Nets in the East, and the Jazz in the West. So the Jazz are the only team that, on paper, have kind of a waltz in the park series, and now it behooves them to you know make make the series unfold that way so that they get the advantage of of rest and um, you know an opportunity to advance and take care of business later on in the playoffs. Dan, in the first hour, I talked about. Maybe letting Ja Morant shoot from the perimeter. Make him shoot from the outside. Don't let him get to the rim, into the restriction area, and lift up a floater. I don't know how many shots came inside the paint or how many were floaters or not, but how do you guard Ja Morant so he's not dominating inside the paint like he was last night? Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely what the scouting report says on Ja because he is not an outside shooter, but he's he's really successful when he gets downhill. And it's not just him either, Ajay, the the entire Memphis team took a higher percentage of their shots in that short mid-range area, so like 4 to 14 feet from the rim, than literally any other NBA team, and, and by a pretty wide distance. Almost a third of their shots come in that, 
you know, call it the, the floater range or, or paint non-restricted, whatever you're calling it, kind of that in-between where you're not taking pull-up long twos, but you're also not getting all the way to the rim. Memphis takes a ton of those shots. And coming into this series, by the way, you know, I looked at that and I thought, oh, that bodes well for the Jazz because that's a, that's a part of the floor that Rudy Gobert really negates for other teams. So I was looking at that and saying, ooh, the, the Grizzlies have a math problem in that they really rely in this one part of the court that Rudy Gobert is able to just lock down and not allow. But what happened yesterday, I think, is that Jazz, uh, jazz perimeter defenders just need to take a little bit more pride in staying in front of the ball and staying connected on the perimeter because Rudy is elite at locking down the, the paint you know, within the scheme. But if you get beat off the dribble, if you get beat without a screen, now your whole defense is out of scheme. Now, now everybody's improvising, and Rudy Gobert's got to figure it out. As opposed to like, you know, look, if, if John Morant comes around a pick, Rudy Gobert knows what his job is supposed to be in that situation. But if, if you know, Jordan Clarkson or Royce O'Neal or even Mike Conley is, is, you know, positioned in front of John Morant on the perimeter and John just runs right around him without a screen, without, you know, that's, that's, that's more problematic. And that's what I saw more than anything else is Rudy and even Derek Favors, who, by the way, had a heck of a game. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Favors had maybe his most, uh, that was maybe the most mobile I've seen him all year, just in terms of being spry and, and, you know, really playing with energy. But, but both Gobert and Favors, need to be able to guard within the team structure. And that can't happen if, if guys are just getting beat on the perimeter. So there just needs to be a little bit more of a commitment to staying in front or, or at least to, you know, sticking in what the jazz are trying to do in terms of their funneling approach and, and the way they want to play defense collectively. Hey, I'm glad you, you recognize favors who, who really did have had a really good game. Uh, but let's face it, let's be honest here. A lot of jazz fans that are out there saying, well, Donovan, Donovan will be back on Wednesday. Everything's fine. Uh, I don't think that's the case. Again, I'm not pulling the panic button, but who do you think really needs to step up and, and up their game, uh, as the series moves forward? You know, I, I think it's interesting because like we all know, the three of us know anyone who watches the jazz knows that Jordan Clarkson is really important to, to how the jazz play, especially when they go to some of those hybrid, you know, bench starter units that are a little bit more starved for offense. The Jordan's ability to just go get a bucket is something that is in kind of short supply on this team. Like the team has a lot of ball handlers, but most of them are pick and roll ball handlers, not just guys who can kind of go out and manufacture something out of thin air. And that's really important, and it, it has been a, a big part of the Jazz's success on their way to a 52-20 and 20 record, and it's part of the reason why Jordan is either going to finish first or second in sixth man of the year voting. I do think, though, that the Jazz kind of have a decision to make in terms of how they want their offensive hierarchy to look, because Jordan Clarkson, when the season started, he was red hot, and the Jazz basically used him as a third option, right? At any given point in time, their second option was the Conley Gobert pick and roll, and their first option was Donovan Mitchell doing something, either either creating via pick and roll or creating with the ball in his hands. And the third option was Jordan Clarkson, and that was fine when he started the first when he started the season shooting 
50, 40, 90 for the first month of the season, right? 50 from the field, 40 from three, and 90 from the free throw line. Like, the kid was ridiculously efficient to start the season. And so it made sense that he was using the third most possessions out of any creation option on the Jazz. Well, now, since then, for the last three months now, he's basically actually almost four months now, he's been playing pretty inefficiently, and yet the Jazz haven't kind of restructured or reallocated the way possessions get used. Even though they have Joe Ingles, who's also a really good pick-and-roll creator, they have Boyan Bogdanovich, who's come alive over the last month. They have all these other ways that they can create efficient offense. And so I think if if Jordan is going to continue to go out and, you know, yesterday he he scored 14 points, but on 16 attempts from the field, um, he had four turnovers, he had two free throw trips. So you're talking about a guy who, who used 22 possessions and gave the Jazz 14 points in those 22 possessions. Wow. That just, that's just not good enough. And that either means that Jordan Clarkson needs to really address this efficiency funk he's been in for, for three months now, or it means the Jazz need to decide that there are other more efficient options and, and ways that they can, you know, prioritize what they do within their rotation at different points throughout the game. I was watching your uh, Twitter thread about Rudy Gobert's six fouls. I loved how you broke them down. There's some fans on our uh, on our station that are upset with the way he was refed. And even Rudy said yesterday, it's hard to play when I don't know how they're calling it. Do you agree with that assessment, or do you feel like it was – you know, it was it was right there, clear as day, uh, how the game was being refed, and Rudy just got himself in trouble. Well, let me zoom out first. I, I think, I think, look, anyone who watched that game and came away feeling like the refs are the reason the Jazz lost was watching a different game than I was <laughs> because the the Grizzlies just get like we got to give the Grizzlies credit. They played a hard game. They had a good game plan. They. The Jazz did not respond well in the second and third quarters when the Grizzlies ratcheted up the intensity. Eventually, they did respond, and they did kick that in, and they, they had a chance to win the, the ball game late. But, you know, I, 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 don't, I can't look at that game and go, oh, man, the officiating was, was the Jazz's Achilles heel. I do think, look, it's, playoff basketball is always a little bit more arbitrary to officiate that's especially true when you've got two defensive-minded teams, and, and both Utah and Memphis are like in the top quarter of the league for defensive efficiency. And that means you're going to have some grinded-out battles. You're going to have some, some Greco-Roman wrestling matches in the paint. And I, and I think that was true last night. Uh, having said that, you know, when, once I went back and looked at the fouls, I don't, I don't believe Rudy did get a raw deal. I think that there were one or two where either Jonas Valanciunas tricked the refs into something or where the refs thought they saw, saw something they didn't. But mostly I think what we saw was Jonas was able to figure out the way they were calling the game. Jonas figured out that, hey, they're going to call this kind of contact and not this kind of contact. So, you know, he was putting his hands on Rudy and, and baiting Rudy into responding. And then Rudy was getting called for the retaliation on a lot of those situations and that's just that's part of what you have to figure out in a playoff game. So I, I don't disagree with Rudy, but I, I don't necessarily think that it's something where he was the victim of just, you know, ill-advised officiating. I think what happened is he just, he just has to figure out how to read that better. Like most of his fouls I, and, and the thread you're talking about, Ajay, I actually went and like freeze-framed the moment 
where like yeah. Rudy Gobert has two hands in the back of Jonas Valanciunas on a on a rebounding battle, or freeze frames a moment where Rudy has his hand in the chest of Kyle Anderson on a on a putback attempt. Like most of those fouls, I could point to the moment where I'm like, that's what Rudy. Like Rudy gave the official the excuse to make that call, whether it was consistent with another moment in the game or not. Like if you put two hands in the back of a, of another rebounder, you've just given the refs permission to make that call. So Rudy just needs to to sort that out. I have no doubt that he will. He's a, he's an amazing player. He, He impacts the game more than all, but a handful of NBA players. But yeah, I, I think it, it more just came down to, Jonas was able to suss out what they were calling and what they weren't, and Ro- and Rudy never did. Dan Klein of Salt City Hoops joins us here on the Full Court Press. Uh, Dan, the Donovan situation was really strange. Uh, Sunday morning, he said he was good to go. Sunday afternoon, they ruled him out. Monday today, they said he's available officially for Game 2. Uh, when you look at the situation, two questions. One, can the Jazz get fined for the misreport on their injury report the day of a game? And two... How much damage can it really, because we hear from the national perspective, but they don't know crap. They have no idea what they're talking about. But, like, when I, I mean, I'll follow you, uh, Tony Jones, Sarah Todd, Andy Larson. Like, how much damage can it actually do for a team, especially in the middle of a playoff? Well, yeah. I, so here's the thing that I don't think most fans realize when, when they hear the reporting and the confusion on this kind of situation. And that's just the sheer number of people involved in a decision like this, right? So... Donovan has his own trainers and, and his private medical staff. There are the team doctors. Then there's the coaching staff. Then there's front office people. And in, and in the middle of all that, let's not forget that, like, there's the player himself. And I think that's the thing that, that often we forget, to, we forget to factor in, that this is a human decision about someone's own personal health care, and it's their body, and it's their process that they're managing. So, you know, that's a lot of stuff that goes on. Now, all of those people I just mentioned, there's not anybody I just mentioned who, who didn't want Donovan to play yesterday. Everyone I just mentioned wants Donovan to also be at the top of his game and at the best he can be in two months when hopefully the Jazz are in the conference finals or the finals. And everybody I just mentioned also wants Donovan to be healthy in the long term and have a long, productive, healthy career. So everybody wants the same things. I think what happens is that different people get different ideas about how much risk there is between those three, you know, the short term, the medium term and the long term outcomes. And they just sort of prioritize differently. And, and obviously, you know, Donovan has made it clear in his public comments today that he wanted to go yesterday. He thought he was ready. He wanted to play. And, you know, someone in, in all of those stakeholders I just mentioned felt like it would be better for the jazz to make sure that they're not doing anything that would jeopardize Donovan's health if they are to make a, a conference finals or a finals later or Donovan's health in the long term. And like, and, and my whole point is like, we should just, we should get that and we should get that it's a complex process. And yes, of course it can be damaging if, if Donovan feels like other people have different priorities than him. But I think at the end of the day, everybody's priorities are the same. Like everybody wants the jazz to win this playoff series they want them to win the next playoff series. They want them to keep winning playoff series, and they want Donovan Mitchell to be healthy in the long term. Um, I, I, I think it was it, it is a big deal today. Like I think that it's I think Donovan was visibly bothered. He tweeted some stuff yesterday. Even today, he's been 
tweeting some stuff about how, you know, he, he definitely wanted to play. He wanted to be on the court. But I think it's the kind of thing that people will forget really quickly if he comes back and the Jazz get their stuff right and they make quick work of the Memphis Grizzlies in advance. So, you know, winning winning cures a lot of stuff is, I guess, my short answer. <laughs> yes, it does. Hey, I'd love to keep talking Jazz with you, but I got I to gotta get your thoughts on the NBA as a whole. Uh, only eight games in the book. Great eight games, though. Were, was there anything that stood out to you, or is it just way too early uh, after just one game in each series to really um, make any deep analysis? Yeah, I mean, I try to not overreact too much to one game of sample size in, in any context, but I, I think that, you know, there are a few things that, that maybe when we combine them with the body of work we saw over 72 games from these teams, that, that maybe yesterday and Saturday just kind of com- confirmed some things for us. Uh, you know, it, it depends on what series you want to talk about. I, I was, I was really curious about Suns Lakers. Cause again, I, I do believe those are two teams that when they're at their best, they are, they are contenders with a capital C. Um, I think Phoenix showed everybody why they're for real. And I think the Lakers showed everybody that they're not at a hundred percent yet. And so that's, I think something to keep an eye on is, is just, um, you know, look, as soon as LeBron James and Anthony Davis are back to even 90% of their usual selves, that team is going to be good enough to give anybody a really rough series. But right now they just, they, they are struggling. Those guys can't just create something out of nothing like they normally can. Um, you know, let's not forget Chris Paul, hurt himself midway mm-hmm. through that, that game one in Phoenix to the point where like he couldn't, he couldn't dribble the ball like Chris Paul, who is maybe the best ball handler of, of our era in, in terms of, you know, NBA guys with the ball in their hands and, and, you know, the, that point God mold of, of point guard, he couldn't dribble the ball and the Lakers were still never even close to winning that game. Like it was a double digit lead coming down the stretch. I think the final margin was nine, but like it's, you know, the Lakers have some stuff they definitely need to figure out. Some of that is going to be lineup oriented because, you know, I, I don't like the fact that they're still using Andre Drummond and not using Mark Gasol at all. Um, I think most of their best lineups involve either Anthony Davis at center or Mark Gasol playing, playing some of those minutes that Andre Drummond plays now. You know, so they'll look at lineups too. But, but ultimately, I think what that game reminded me is that, um, is the guys need to be guys need to be at ninety ninety five a hundred percent before we really can trust what we see out of forty eight minutes of basketball. But I don't know if there's a particular series you wanted to to you know talk to or, no, or banter about. Yeah, just your thoughts. But I have, I have a deeper question for you. I'd like your thoughts on on time management and and whether at this point it's still such an important uh, factor for teams. You know, we saw Kawhi sitting out as he always has. How important is that, or do you think with the shorter season it makes a difference this year? Um, I think it always makes a difference. I think, yeah, I, I think that we are we have much more information now than we did in like the John Stockton and Carl Malone days about just the the benefit of not just not just the wear and tear that you know constantly playing forty minutes a game has, but the value of of recuperation time for your body, right? Especially in an NBA where a lot of these stars that we're talking about, you know, Kawhi's still in his twenties, but LeBron is 36 and, you know, Chris Paul, I I just mentioned he got, he got hurt. He's in his thirties. So 
you know, I think guys at that age, and I, I'm saying this in the first person because, <laughs> you know, I'm up there too. You know, you, you, your body just needs a day to recover after you go out and, and go through the, the grueling grind of an NBA basketball game for 48 minutes or, or for whatever length of time. So I do think that that's going to continue to be part of the basketball conversation is just how teams and players manage that process to make sure that at the end of, you know, a 72 or 82 game season and then a, a two to three month long playoff grind that you have enough guys still standing to, to beat the other team. And, and, you know, I, I, I do think it's real. I, I think I even back in the days when I used to spend a lot of time in, in the locker room with, with the jazz guys and with visiting opponents, I used to ask guys how real it was. And I'll never forget something that a jazz player said to me that I just hadn't like I was young enough and dumb enough that I hadn't really processed this yet, but he was like, you know, it's not even necessarily the physical part. It's just the fact that like, you got to mentally prepare for your opponent. You got to read the scouting report. You got to, you got to train your brain. Like, how am I going to react when this guy goes right versus when he goes left? How am I, how as a team are we going to respond when they set this pick going this direction versus, you know, this back screen over here? Like you got to prepare for all of that mentally and then, you know, the next night or two nights later, you got to prepare for a whole other opponent with a whole different set of tendencies. So even I think just the mental process of, of a back-to-back or, or games in quick succession do, is taxing on guys in a different way. And then, yeah, you know, physically too, like I say, I, guys, just need, guys just need a day or two to bounce back, I think, and be ready to impact the game at a high level. Dan, final question from me. Who's in more trouble Nuggets without Jamal Murray versus a Portland lineup who is just cooking right now, especially in the backcourt, or the Clippers who tanked the final two games to the two worst teams in the league and then still got it handed to by Luka Doncic? I mean, if the question is who's in more trouble, I think it's Denver. I think I think Denver knows that without Jamal Murray, they're a little bit more solvable in a playoff series kind of setting. Um, but, but, like, look, the Clippers have a lot of pressure on them going into game two, right? Um, the, the store, the book on them is that they have wilted in the playoffs for, you know, ever, basically they've still never made it to the conference finals. Like, um, so, you know, they have a lot of doubt that is going to be, that that noise is just going to get louder and louder if, if Dallas keeps them on the ropes. Um, I still think that I would, I still think that I would peg them as like a coin toss or better to win that series. Whereas I think Denver you know, Denver at some point is just going to have to reckon with the fact that, let's not forget, they're not just without Jamal Murray. They're without four guards right now. They're without Will Barton, um, Monte Morris, and someone else who I'm forgetting. Oh, P.J. Dozier has, has been in and out of the lineup as well. So, like, at some point they just have to reckon with the fact that, like, you, you know, scheming for Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray is really hard. Scheming for Nikola Jokic and just a bunch of guys like Austin Rivers and Faku Campazzo like that's a little easier. You can, you have more options available to you. If you're game planning for that. Um, and so, you know, whether it's against Portland or whether it's in the second round against the winner of, of Suns Lakers, eventually the, the nuggets are going to come face to face with that harsh reality that they just don't have all the same creation options that they normally have. The, the Clippers, the Clippers have ways to get out of this mess, but man, if they don't, it's, it's going to be a noisy, uncomfortable summer for them. Dan, you're one of the very best. Thank you so much. Uh, hey, we gotta. I mean, you're like a weekly guest. We gotta find a song. Like, what's an intro song that we would pick for Dan Clayton to come onto our show? We gotta start using it. 
Yeah, you're you're putting me on the spot here. I'm not good. I'm not good like Jordan Clarkson, who just like came up with that <laughs> yeah. Years for Fears song off the top of his head. Um, I don't know. Most of my music stuff is like deep cut kind of stuff that no one else has heard of. So I'll, oh. I'll have to dive into my library and find something that is both appropriate and that like any other humans would recognize. Producer so. Cody, you got that? Uh, I deep got cut it. Stuff, deep man, cut. find it. All right, I got to write that down. <laughs> <laughs> hey Dan, thank you so much. Let's do it again next week, shall we? All right, thanks, fellas. All right, anytime. Dan, Dan Clayton of SaltCityHoopsESPN.com joined us here on the Full Court Press. Great stuff from Dan. I, I, I loved his uh, analysis.